Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Greg, and I'm doing the second Bible reading for you today uh, from Luke f- chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, the calling of the first disciples. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signalled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. The man with leprosy. Whilst Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go Show yourself to the priests, the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We give thanks for this, the word of God. Thank you, Greg. Now, do keep your Bibles open. If you have the news uh, letter on the inside, there is the outline. You might find that helpful to follow along and take notes if you wish. Uh, But let's pray once again and ask that God will help us. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, may your spirit be our guide, grant us wisdom, and convict our hearts in the way you want us to go so that our heart's desire might align with your will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a question, and that is, is your God a big God or small God? Now, you might find that a strange question. Is your God a big God or small God? Because obviously, God is as big as you can ever get. He's infinite. He's eternal. He has no limits. God is huge. God is big. But what I mean is, does your life, reflecting on your own life, reflect 
a big God or a small God. You see, how I live, what I desire in life, what my pursuits are in life, what I pray for, what I pray about, it's very revealing. And what I think it reveals is whether we believe in a big God or small God. You see, how I live, what I pray for, reveals whether my God is too small to handle my big problems in life or whether my God is so big that even my smallest problems he is concerned for. You see, how I pray, what I desire, will reveal whether my God is small, whether he's just happy for me to plod along in life and do what I please, however I please, with no changes at all to my life. I do and live as I please. Or whether my God is big, who has in fact called me to something bigger. He has called me out of my previous life into something bigger, bigger than I could possibly imagine. And I think that sense we get from this passage, a big God who calls us to something bigger. It's a sense we felt last week. Last week, you would remember, the elders, their wives, the staff team, we went away on a leadership retreat. And as we together, as your leaders, considered, prayed, discussed, and planned about the future vision of our church, the conviction was amongst us all. We've all been called to something bigger than just being the same comfortable church where nothing changes in three years' time, in five years' time, in a hundred years' time. But that God has in fact called us as a church to something greater, something bigger, to see life so radically changed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see that same gospel taken to the ends of the earth. You see, our God is big and he can make that happen. In fact, I think our God may even surprise us by what he has in store for us. And so the question again, do I have, do you have a big God in your mind or a small God? Because in this passage, what we find is Simon Peter, he was about to have his life turned upside down. His world was rocked. You are part of something bigger, Peter, than fishing in this lake. And perhaps today, as I was reflecting on this passage and praying about this passage, perhaps today, those same words, God may be speaking to your heart. You are part of something bigger, bigger than you could ever imagine than what you are doing now. And so let's have a look at this passage. What we find here firstly is we find a failed fisherman, but one made a fisher of men. Jesus, who was teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, people were pressing and crowding around him so that he had to get on a boat, go a little further so that he might teach from the boat. He sat down to teach just like what he did in the synagogue. And so that day the boat was his pulpit. But the focus of Jesus in this story was on Simon Peter. He had his eye on Simon Peter. Now it was quite obvious to everyone there that day that they had a bad night fishing. Fixing the nets, but no fish to show for. Now, we might just think, well, that happens all the time to all of us. You go fishing, you catch nothing. That's normal. That's obvious. So what's the big deal? But, of course, we have to remember they were professional fishermen. 
This was their life. This was their trade. This was their livelihood. And so a night out, no fishing meant no income, no money. And that was a big deal. And so you can just imagine these fishermen, cold, wet after a night out fishing with nothing to show for, and now feeling a bit dejected and depressed. How will I pay for my bills? How will I feed my family? And so as we read this story about fishing, we can't be thinking about our own fishing trips, you know. 99%, no, 99.99% of the time I go out fishing, I catch nothing. That's pretty ordinary. But who cares? Go past Macca's on the way back, order fillet fish, and you're fine. You get fish anyway. But not for them. This was their livelihood. The whole life's purpose was to catch fish. And so after teaching, Jesus now focuses on Simon Peter. And what did Jesus say? Verse 4. Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now you can just imagine what was going on through Simon Peter's mind at this point. I am a professional fisherman. You are a carpenter. What do you know? The best time to fish is at night time, not during the day, not now, not where you're saying. The best time was last night, but we caught nothing. What do you know? You can use my boat to preach from, but don't come to my boat and tell me how to fish. You see, it would be a bit like if I were to go to your workplace, if you're working. Sure, you're an expert accountant, but let me tell you how to do a tax return. And you're thinking, you're a minister, you have no clue. Or I go to your workplace, you're a surgeon. Well, let me tell you how to properly hold a scalpel. And you're thinking, you have no idea. And so Jesus is saying, you, a fisherman, I'm a carpenter, but let me show you how to fish. And so Simon Peter obviously expresses his doubt. We can understand why. Of course you would doubt. But do you notice what was surprising in his response? He expressed his doubt, but he also expressed faith at the same time. Look at verse 5. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. That there is what you call faith. You said so, and so I'll do so. You said so, and so I'll believe so. I'll take you at your word. In in fact, that's an important lesson for us as we think about our own lives. You see, there are so many things we see and experience in life. So many things, so many depressing things, so many disappointing things, and often things that will raise a lot of doubts in our minds. I mean, we ask God, God, look around the world. Look at the war that's going on in Ukraine. Are you really in control, God? And so we doubt. Or as we reflect on our own lives, and I know for some in our church family, this is a hard, hard season, Lord. There is so much I'm carrying and bearing. How do I get through this? Do you still really love me, Lord? And so we doubt. We may doubt, however, like Peter, we can still express faith because you said so, God. Because you said so, I will take you at your word. And that is faith. And so Simon Peter, he expresses faith. He went out to the deep. Do you notice? Jesus said, go out to the deep. He didn't stay in the shallows. In a sense, faith is often tested 
at the deep end. Not in the shallows where we can just walk around, but in the deep end. And then we read verses 6 to 7. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats full, so full that they began to sink. And so not just nets breaking now, but boats sinking. And Simon's faith was rewarded. You see, there would have been no fish if he didn't trust Jesus and his word. But then Peter, Simon Peter, also realized. Do you notice what happened next? He realized at that point, it was like a turning point, that he realized the one who was standing before him was the one who is the Lord of the universe. What he saw just then was nothing less than a miracle. I mean, when I go out fishing and I catch one fish, that is a miracle already. But this was a catch of a lifetime. And Peter, knowing fishing, he would have known what a bad day's catch was, what a good day's catch was, what a great day's catch was, but this took the cake. Two boatfuls, so much so that they were sinking. He saw the power of God on display. And so he responded. Do you see how he responded? He responded the only way you should when you are standing in the presence of the Lord of the universe. You see, his reaction here will be the reaction of every single soul. The billions of people in the world now, the billions of, the pe of people in the past, it will be the reaction of every single soul when one day we come into the presence of God. Will be that response of unspeakable fear and terror and trepidation and dread. There will be the rightful reverence towards God, which I think, as a side note, this rightful reverence towards God is perhaps something we're not so much as mindful of than perhaps the older generations. This reverence towards God. I mean, this is perhaps one of my pet peeves, but how do we approach God even in prayer? Do you notice your posture or our posture in prayer? I mean, this has been a teaching lesson with our kids. Sometimes we're praying to God and they're like this, slouching. And I'm thinking, we are in the presence of God. You don't sit that way in front of your teachers. One day you'll go to a job interview. You don't sit that way in a job interview, but before God. He responded to God the right way. With fear and trepidation, he was filled with terror. A bit like Isaiah in that first reading. Remember when Isaiah came into the presence of God at the temple and he, he laid his eyes upon the glory of God? What, what did he do? He fell down like a dead man. Remember that verse? He said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, God is so holy, so holy, so blazingly holy, that to come into the presence of God, you are exposed. You are naked. You are ashamed. 
He said, when we come to know the blazing holiness of God, we come to see the filth of our sinfulness. Holy and the unholy cannot be in the same place. And that's why Simon Peter reacted the way he did. You see verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter was terrified and intimidated by the power and holiness of Jesus. And perhaps that's why even today as we reflect on talking about Jesus with our family and friends, perhaps it's why many people like to keep Jesus at a distance. You know, very happy to use Jesus as a swear word. Very happy to talk about Jesus superficially, but to consider Jesus personally, to know him personally, to think deeply about who he is and what he taught, that is deeply terrifying. That is uncomfortable because holiness is scary. You see, the response towards Jesus is very similar to what John said in the Gospel of John. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. To come to Jesus is to come to the light. And so Simon Peter was exposed. And so he said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, how did Jesus respond? They just went on a fishing trip. Did Jesus say, don't be silly, Peter. What are you doing on the ground? Get up. What are you saying? Jesus did not say that. Why? Because his response was absolutely right when you are in the presence of the Almighty. And Jesus responded the same way with all the other angels in the Gospel of Luke so far, with the epiphanies. You know, when the angels appeared to Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds, they all said, Do not be afraid. And so Jesus now says, Do not be afraid. But he adds something else. Look at verse 10. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now, it's worth us reflecting on that word catch for a moment. The word catch, the tense of it, is what you call a present participle, which means it's a verb that keeps on happening, keeps on going. It's ongoing word. You go on catching. And so, Peter, you will go on catching men and women until the day you die. You might get a big catch, but you don't stop. You keep on doing it. It is a present participle. You'll be part of something bigger than just this lake. And the word catch also has the nuance of capturing alive. To capture alive. A, a, a bit unlike fishing, in fact. In fishing, what do you do? The fish is alive, you catch it, and then you kill it, and you eat it. You cook it first, and then you eat it. Unless you want sashimi or whatever. But anyway, it dies. But he is capturing alive. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, spiritually speaking, you'll be going out and capturing spiritually dead men and women, but you'll be bringing life to them. You're going to be a fish of men. You're going to be part of something bigger because you're drawing people into the kingdom of God. You're bringing people from this world into the next world. 
and then what happens next? Well, what happens next should surprise us because what did Simon Peter and the, and the fishermen do? Verse 11. As simple as that, they left everything and followed him. Now, are you surprised by that? We should be. We should be shocked by it. This was the biggest catch ever. It was, this was huge. And what did he do? Well, you would expect him to at least, let's just take some for the road, Jesus. Just hold on. Like You go ahead, but I'll, I'll just fill out my bag first. Or he could have organized someone just to sell all the fish at the markets. Or if he was, if he was one of us living back then, Jesus, just hold on. Let's take a selfie first, Jesus. Stand next to me. Make sure you get the picture of the two boats full of fish and let's post it on Instagram, otherwise it didn't happen. If we were there, we probably would have done that. You're laughing because that's true, right? But no, they left everything. Their biggest catch, their whole life's purpose, they got it. But they left it and followed Jesus as a disciple. They were called to something bigger. And so here in this first part of this passage, a failed fisherman made a fish of men. And then next we get this story about a leper. I'll spend a shorter time on this. From failed fishermen to now the living dead. Now you're wondering, what's the connection between Peter's story and the leper's story? And if you're thinking that, you're not alone. You see, there's a connection. I think there is a connection. As soon as Peter was called out from his career, from his profession, from his job to go and catch men, we're now meant to be asking, well, what type of men? What type of people is he to catch? Well, this type. This type of people. You're going to go from fishing to catching men and women, and it's not going to be glamorous work. It's to reach the outcast, the unwanted, the living dead, the leper. And if you could think of the worst type of life you could be living in the ancient world, it was the life of a leper, which was no life at all. I mean, physically, but also spiritually, banished from the people of God. You're on the outside. Their condition Obviously, itching, hurting, eating away at their skin. Your, your life was pretty much lifelong quarantine. I, I know we know what quarantine means today. Seven days. Oh, man, what am I going to eat? How am I going to exercise? This was lifelong quarantine. Lifelong. Cast out, living outside the city walls, living perhaps in a leper colony, not able to earn a living and not because it was your fault. And when you went anywhere, you had to call out, unclean, unclean. Today, people might say, COVID, COVID, and everyone gets away. That's because no one was allowed to get close. You were untouchable. I mean, I'm not sure if you've met anyone with leprosy, but Yvonne shared with me growing up in Vietnam, you see lepers on the street, and it was a, a nice sight to see. Fingers all gone, just the palm of the hands. You're like the living dead. But Peter... You're part of something bigger, bigger than catching fish. But it is to catch men and women like this. And then this leper finding Jesus, what happened? Well, responded very similar to Peter, verse 12. He fell with his feet to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, do you notice his faith there as well? 
You see, his request was not whether Jesus was able to. He knew Jesus had the power to heal him, to cleanse him. But his request was whether Jesus was willing to. Why? Because you can sense his anxiety. Having been so often and so regularly rejected, shunned, ignored, discriminated, cast out, he would have been questioning, will Jesus avoid me too? And was Jesus willing? Verse 12. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Be clean. And the leprosy immediately left him. Now what should be surprising at this point as you read this? Why did Jesus touch him? Surely Jesus has the power to just speak and for the leprosy to go, of course. He healed so many just by speaking. He cast out demons just by speaking. In fact, he even raised the dead Lazarus. Come out. And he did. Why touch? You see, that was intentional because it was the great display of the reversal of the curse. Rather than uncleanness coming from the leper to Jesus, cleanness, in a sense, went from Jesus to the leper. And what we see there in miniature is a picture of the gospel. It was the touch of the gospel. It's, in a sense, the doctrine of substitution. The Son of God came to earth to reach out to touch the untouchable, to love the unlovable, and to say, I will bear your curse, your filthiness, and you get my righteousness. Now, you must have to wonder what that day would have been like for the leper, or what that moment would have been like for the leper. He probably never had another human touch, never felt a human touch for years. Not by his parents, and if he was married, not by his wife or kids. And so that, that tenderness, that loving, gentle touch was a distant memory. But that day, that moment, he got to experience it from the Son of God. And then what did Jesus do next? Verse 14. Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You see, what Jesus was getting him to do there was to testify to the Jewish rulers and authorities that the Messianic age has arrived. You see, the priest would have asked the leper, well, how were you, how were you cleansed? How did this happen? It just doesn't happen this way. How, how did that? Well, one touched me, and I was cleansed immediately. And they should have known we have never seen anything like this. Jesus was able to do what the law was unable to do. The law pronounced you unclean. Jesus came and made him clean. The Messiah has come. And so here in this story, the walking dead now made clean and alive. And that is what it looks like to capture a life. And so that's our passage. Two wonderful, marvelous stories. I think it's a passage that's pretty easy to understand. It's not complicated. You read it, you can understand it. Jesus is powerful. He calls out Simon. He heals the leper. Very easy to understand. But I think the lesson of this passage 
is very hard to put into practice. Because you see, what this passage calls for each one of us as we reflect on it, as we meditate on it, is to tell us that we too are part of something bigger, something greater. And that calls for radical discipleship. Not just a laissez-faire way of life, I'll get on doing what I normally do and nothing changes and I'm just like the rest. Not at all. It calls for radical discipleship. You see, Peter would have had no idea at all how his life was going to change from that day onwards. You see, he was just an ordinary fisherman. And if he did not follow Jesus, he would have one day died an ordinary fisherman. But his God was big. He's got a big God with bigger things, calling him to greater things. He became leader amongst the twelve, an apostle to the people of God. He went from fishing to preaching. He went from gutting fish to saving souls and to seeing souls transformed for all eternity. He brought the gospel from people to people, which went from generation to generation, such that because of what Peter did, not just him alone, but at least him, we get to see that picture of what we talked about before, the love-centered church. And that passage in Revelation, Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. He was part of something bigger. Now, do you think he could have imagined that that would be the result of him following Jesus that day? Who would have known? He would not have known that we would still be speaking about him today. But he was part of something bigger because he had a big and great God. And the reality is that we have the same God. The same God who called Peter. The same Jesus who called Peter is the same Jesus who calls us. Who calls us today. And so the question is, what are you doing in your life? What are you going to do in your life? Catch fish in a small lake? Whatever that might look like for your life? Plot along as normal, as something and someone ordinary. Or will you be a catcher of men and women, making a difference in the lives of the souls you touch, not just for now, but for all eternity? Will you continue to live life with just a very small God and a small perspective on life? Or will you continue to live life with a big God and eternity's perspective in view? You see, I think that's why it's hard to put into practice. Easy to understand, hard to put into practice, because I think for some of us, I think for some of us in our church, not all, because God uses us in different ways, God will make use of us in different ways for the sake of his glory and for the good of his people and for the glory of Christ. God will use us. His spirit will equip us all in different ways. However, for some of us, it will mean just like Peter. It will mean just like that. Leaving Korea, leaving profession, leaving what I worked my life for, leaving that big catch, and to follow Jesus like a radical disciple. 
at our elders' retreat last week, we really long to see that God will raise from amongst us, from amongst this group, men and women who will be gospel workers, missionaries sent out to the ends of the earth. But what does that calling mean for you? To be called out from our careers, our professions, to follow Christ in this way. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are always, always few. And many are so good, it's many of you, and we'll say this again, many of you are so good, so successful in your jobs. And after speaking to one of the elders, we felt this tension, how could we? They're good at their jobs. They're wonderful at it. They do so well. How can we call them out of that and to do something else? But we can, only God can, because it is something bigger. It is something bigger. And I dream, because we do have a big God, I do dream, praying that maybe amongst us, God will raise another Billy Graham, another Hudson Taylor, another Martin Lloyd-Jones, another Adoniram Judson. Hard to put into practice. But perhaps today, God may be speaking to you, and you might be saying, well, Lord, here I am. Send me. But of course, you have to understand this rightly, and don't get me wrong. Discipleship is not just about going to the mission field. Discipleship is not just going to full-time gospel work. Discipleship is always costly, whatever that looks like. But it's not just those things. We're not all meant to be Billy Grahams. God uses us differently in different ways. But we are all to be catchers of men and women. And we all know we've got family members and friends and neighbours who do not know the Lord. Who will catch them if not you? But it's every station of life, every season of life, we are all to be catching men and women. And so those of us who are retired, there are a number of us who are retired, it's very easy. I mean, I'm not thinking about retirement yet, but it's very easy to get to retirement and to think, now I can live for myself. I've done my due. I've worked hard. Now I can live for myself. But is that how a Christian is to retire? In the retirement village, I heard a story of one of the members of our church. He sees his retirement village as his mission field. These people are facing their end. Who's going to catch men and women? Who's going to catch them for the kingdom of God? And so he goes around his retirement village praying for his neighbors, sharing Christ, loving them. That is his mission field. In fact, this week, even in school, for those of us who are still in school, I heard from one of our youth, a teenager. She shared, she was talking about evolution and creation with her friend, about God as creator. They talked about morality, and she got to share the gospel. Draw some pictures, share the gospel. What a joy, catching men and women for the kingdom of God. But of course, I do want to ask that same question. What does discipleship mean for you? And has it cost you anything? Peter left it all and followed Jesus. And I fear that in the comfort of this part of the world, my fear is that we simply become a Christianized version of the world. The world will have its 
Wealth and riches, well, I'll have some of that too, please. The world will have its successes. I'll have some of that too, please. The world has that. I'll have some of that. And I'll just add on my Sundays and church. It cannot be. It cannot be. And so why do we live like that? Why do we live like eternity does not matter? When many of us have so many friends and family we dearly love. Does eternity matter? Will I remain a pew warmer? Or do I have a big God who has called me to greater things? Radical discipleship. C.S. Lewis, he, he puts it this way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. As though what Jesus wants is a bit of us here and there and we should be content and happy. No. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hang hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit and I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's radical discipleship. That's the core, not for just some of us, but for all of us. We may leave everything, and if that is the case, we have Jesus. We have it all. To make costly decisions for the sake of the gospel, where I live, there may be costs involved because I'm choosing for the sake of the kingdom. What I buy will be costly because for the sake of the kingdom, I'll make sacrifices. Who I marry, or whether I marry at all. How I spend, not just my time, my money, myself, my efforts. We've got a big God who has called us to greater things. And I'll end in this up. I was challenged as I thought about this because I think we're challenged where we hold most dear, what we hold most precious. Now, as a parent, what's most precious to me are my children. And, of course, Yvonne is precious as well. They're all part of the package. But as a parent, and those of you who are parents, we want the best for our kids, don't we? Of course we do. But I've wondered this past week, do I want them to understand how big God is? Because it's very easy for a parent just to desire what is normal, what is good in the eyes of the world. I just want my kids to be healthy, to do well in school, to get a job, maybe get married, have children, to be successful, to have a stable, comfortable, comfortable job. And that will be just like the world. And that's good for a parent to desire those things. But come on. God is bigger than that. If my children become super successful, the, the question that pricked my heart was, would I be disappointed if they gave that up and followed Jesus as a radical disciple? Or will I be filled of joy because they have come to understand their God is big, who has called them to greater things? And so again, is your God big or small? I mean, we've got a 
big, big God. But do our lives reflect that? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are indeed big. Your mission in this world is big. Your core of us is big because the kingdom of God is big. And so, Lord, we pray that we will heed your call of discipleship, that where we are, whatever station of life, our efforts will be to making, to seeing, and to catching men and women for the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.